Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's episode, we're joined by Jared Council. Jared is senior editor at Forbes. He covers stories that touch on black business, black culture, and black power. He's a graduate of Hampton University who previously worked in Indiana and Virginia and also at the Wall Street Journal. He's based in Philadelphia. Hi, Jared. Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me. So we always ask to start out, what's your journalism origin story? So my story is, you know, there was no like kind of aha moment. I, I kind of stumbled into to journalism, so to speak. So just to set the stage, I am, I'm, I'm from originally from outside of Philadelphia. I have 11 siblings and I grew up like a, a, a math and science geek. <laughs> like that's, that's where my, my, you know, my inclination was. And yeah, you know, there was nothing sort of in my, in my childhood that really led me to journalism. But when I got to Hampton, I was a biology major there and I was, it was my second year and I, I knew I didn't want to be in biology. And I called my brother, my oldest brother, uh, his name's Rashid. And I was just like, man, I, I just need some advice. Like, what should I do? I don't want to be wasting my time here. And he was like, you know, you should, you should go over to the, to the media school. And, uh, you know, the, the background of that was he and I used to go out and film rap battles on the street. And uh, I used to help him with the, you know, with the, I guess the, the, the camera work and editing and all of that. So, you know, he, he thought that the media, you know, would, would be good for me. So I get there, I had no clue what I was, what to expect. And the dean at the time of the journalism school at Hampton was Tony Brown. And he had, he's known for having one of the longest running shows on, on PBS. And, uh, you know, he, he took a look at some of my writing work and was like, you know, you've, you've, you've got something there. We need to get, we need to get you in some, some crack journalism classes. So, so yeah, that's how I, that's how I came into it. Again, nothing with like special. I didn't write for a high school newspaper or anything. You know, that was my way in. And if you're indulge me for a second, I mean, I, I think for me, like when I actually knew that journalism was for me, that, that probably came around 20, 2010, 2011 when I was working at the Evansville Courier and Press. And while I was there, there was a, there was an event taking place where they had, um, you know, speakers, including civil rights activists, like come in and, and just give these keynotes. And, uh, you know, I was asked to cover it. And the woman who was speaking that, that day was Diane Nash. She was one of the, the, the co-founders of the Stupid Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which as, as as you may know, you know, helped coordinate the bus boycotts and things of that nature back in the '60s. And so, I spoke to her before before that that uh, that that speech. And and then, you know, when the event actually came up, she saw me in a hallway and walked up to me and was like, "That was the most accurate article that had been written about me." you know, ever. And I just, I just want you to know that, that I appreciate it. And uh, I don't know that in, in that moment, I, I, you know, I didn't really know how to process that. I mean, this is this legend in many ways, you know, telling me about my importance as a storyteller. 
And I think what it what it showed me over time was like perspective matters. You know, the power of the pen matters and who's behind that pen matters and what you what you emphasize and the nuances in which you tell a story, the context, the cultural context that you bring to a story, all of that, all of that matters. And, you know, Jared, you have you have a role to play in this broader media landscape about bringing bringing that lens or being an example of, of, of what that looks like. That's a terrific a story and a series of anecdotes that are all kind of just in nature that that kind of take you through from biology all the way to it sounding like it, it becoming somewhat of a calling for you. And I'm curious about those initial stops that you had. You mentioned Evansville. I mentioned you worked in Indiana and Virginia. What were the most important things that you took away from those experiences before you got to the bigger places? Yeah, so in Evansville, I, I was mostly a uh, I, I reported on crime and. I made my way into county county government, so a lot of those stories had to deal with like budgets and finances, and you know how we come up with the money, or you have, we have too much money, and you know what do we do with it, that sort of thing. I, I I was able to leverage like those experiences, especially when it when it comes to to dollars to to get into business journalism. And Virginia was my f- first stop in business journalism, and brand new world for me, but really exciting one. You know, I, I had always, uh, you know, like I mentioned, I'd always kind of liked math and, and numbers and just being able to like cover companies, right? And not just regular citizens, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it was another level and, you know, understanding like this is, this is what they have to go through. This is, these are the challenges that they have. These are the expectations that are placed on them not just from their their customers or their employees, but also governments, you know, and seeing how these institutions with so much power and so much influence, so much money, you know, how they how they manage all of those affairs. And so, you know, while I was there, I was I was covering defense. There was a there's a big naval, you know, a presence there, tourism and higher education and really the business behind how those those entities operate so so that's what I, that's what I learned in Virginia and then Indiana was a really important stop for me because it was there that I learned about the finance behind business right the money that's used to get it started and to fund it and to help it grow and you know while I was there I covered covered tech and startups right I mean what what better <laughs> experience? To, to, to learn about uh, all of those things. And I got there at a really interesting time. There was a company called Salesforce, which, which you may know, you know, big software company. And they bought another firm there named Exact Target for about two and a half billion dollars. And that was in 2013. I arrived in 2014. So I was still seeing the ripple effect of, of that purchase. And yeah, again, you know, I got to see firsthand, you know, folks starting companies with, 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 you know, newfound money. I got to see folks who used to be entrepreneurs turn into angel investors. You know, all of those things, again, about how, how, how venture capital works and how much of a powerful wealth creation tool it is. And, you know, I also <laughs> recognize that, that, that black and brown people were largely absent 
from from those conversations and, and and from that from that wealth creation and you know so 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 though yeah in a nutshell those those two experiences were really pivotal for me not just entering business journalism but really understanding the main you know the primary mechanics of it and 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 how to find good stories to you know to tell people about it and a lot of your current stories are reflected in the fact that you just said that there are there's a lack of black and brown people. A lot of your current stories are, are often giving strong attention to those people. I want to move to the Wall Street Journal, where you were for about two and a half years. And like, I've worked at kind of like the peak of my profession, ESPN. Wall Street Journal, for a lot of people, would be peak of their profession. I'm curious how that experience shaped you as a reporter. Yeah, I mean that was a that was a a dream job for sure, and you know, forever grateful for my for my time there. And that, my my experience there, I was I, I was brought in to cover artificial intelligence. You know, it, it you know again, this this is a technology that for for decades has had its 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 peaks and, and valleys, you know, its hype cycles and its winners. And you know, I was there right. I would say when the when the when the when the hype cycle was kind of heating up and companies were like experimenting with it, like how do we use it? What can we do? This is what we want to do. So, so that was another step in again seeing again how 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 companies operate. But at this time, it was at a national level. You know, you're you're dealing with pretty much publicly traded companies. The CEOs or even other C-suite officials are not as accessible as they might be you know, at more local companies. So, so yeah, learned, learned a lot uh, just in terms of like how to, how to deal with them. I've got more pitches than I can ever imagine. You know, everybody, <laughs> everybody wants their startup or, you know, has this great idea and, uh, you know, everybody's shooting their shot and there's only one, one who, you know, so just learning to deal with that. And, you know, outside of that, I, I just say like generally I had to learn to become faster and more accurate and like you, you can't sacrifice either like you have to and in many cases we had to like turn around daily stories like what was what was the news driving that day um advancing stories for a second day you know takes and that sort of thing and and yeah i mean we're we're moving fast but you 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 can't get anything wrong the corrections were were very much frowned upon and so you know for me it just helped me to like build these habits of fact checking while i'm on the phone like we're repeating things back to sources to make sure I got it right. You know, emailing lines that I wasn't hundred percent sure on, right? Even even the smallest doubt is like double check it, you know. And yeah, it just it just helped build that that up for me. I realized the the gravity of being at a publication like that meant that, you know, your words and your mistakes were were very like they they were very weighty. And and you know, you really had to do your best to to, to make sure that you got it right. So that's that's what I learned there. Yep, I lived it as well. Similar, it sounds like to you, very high pressure atmosphere. One of the highlights of your time there, you did a piece for the journal about the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. And you looked at it from the angle of insurance and how black Tulsans were denied payouts for damage done by whites. How did you combine the history aspect of the interviews, of the history aspect of the story with interviews of both sociologists and family members? Yeah, well, well, first off, I, I just have to say that that working on that story with the, the the team that we had there, 
is my proudest moment in journalism. You know, we were we were able to really tell a story that some folks know, you know, knew about and had been written about before, but to do it with the heft and power, you know, and force of the of the Wall Street Journal and look at it from an economic angle, this this uh, the, the the Tulsa race massacre, which hadn't really been taught in schools. I didn't learn about it in school, but it, it was, you know, the hundredth anniversary was coming up and, you know, we wanted we wanted to to put our stamp on it. So proud of that work. It was a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize last year. And, uh, you know, yeah, just I, I, I can't I'll forever hold that 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 time in my heart. But to your question about sort of the mechanics of it. Yeah. Yeah. And calling together the different threads. I mean, I, 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 I venture to say that there were probably four threads that I, I had to work on all at once with that story. You know, you mentioned the people and finding the family, and that's always important to have that example whenever you're telling a story that can be as mundane, you know, a, a topic as insurance. But I'd also have to throw in the data, like looking through old documents and figuring out what the actual numbers were, making sense of it, making sure that I had a command of it. And I'd throw also um, the history you know, finding people who could put some kind of context around what was going on at the time. So that was another element I had to work through. And then I'd say the the corporate response, right? The like, you know, reaching out to the insurance industry today for an explanation, for a comment of some sort. You know, I think people interested in the question of, was this the right thing to do, right? These claims were denied by the insurance companies, was it the right thing to do? You know, that 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 answer can change over time. And and as and as journalists, I, I think we have to um, you know, answers to questions like that, you know, we have to we have to continually pose it to companies. I mean, there are things that companies have been involved in that were acceptable at one point in time that that are no longer acceptable. And at, at you know at certain points throughout history, um, how leaders felt about those things changed, right? I mean, one example is the the practice of insuring you know writing life insurance policies on enslaved people, uh, you know, for the benefit of the slaveholders, right? I mean, that again, we're not we're far from that, um, but at some point, you know, somebody had to say, look, this 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 isn't right, even if it is legally okay. And and so, again, I just think like history is is really very much living, and um, as journalists, we're the ones that 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 have to pose these questions throughout history. And uh, you know, I think the answers can be very revealing. And so, um, you know, in this case, like spoiler alert, I didn't, <laughs> I got a lot of non-answers. Right, um, just again posing this question of what do you have to say about this? Like, how do your leaders feel? about this incident that happened a hundred years ago, should, should, should it have played out differently? Um, and by and large, the response I got from, from the companies that I asked was, look, we, we can't find any record of, uh, of the claim that you're referring to. This was a hundred years ago. We really can't comment. Right. And that was, that was the extent of it for the most part. Again, look, that's, it's, it's not my job to, to give a certain answer. It's just my job to ask the question. So, 
um, you know, again, that was that was one component of it. Uh, I think finding a family was very uh, was a very challenging aspect of this story. Um, you know, I, I, I was uh, again, the event happened. The, the Tulsa massacre happened in 1921. The lawsuits that were um, basically suing the insurance companies for not paying the claims that all happened over a, a, a 10 or so year period afterwards. And uh, I, I read through a lot of those lawsuits and and just, you know, could kind of see the pain, could see the stories, could see what people had and what they lost and what it meant. I just knew that in order for this story to really hit home, like we have to connect it to today. We have to connect it to someone today. You know, somebody who could, who could speak on, you know, the trauma uh, right, uh, of, uh, of, of, of this happening to one of their ancestors to get their thoughts on what, 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 what could have been all of those sorts of questions, I think can really just, just really bring a lot more relevance and power to a story. You know, when, when, when you have that example of, uh, again, someone who's connected to, to a tragedy like this. So, uh, I was able to find uh, uh, actually a, a TV news reporter who is a descendant of Lulu Williams. Uh, she owned the Dreamland Theater and several other businesses and and really had what was kind of, you know, what, what appeared to be a growing empire. Um, and, uh, you know, I was able to, to to talk with this family and get to hear from them about their feelings on it all. They shared original documents with me. I mean, that was... That was uh, it was again. It was hard to, um, <laughs> to 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 track them down because there's so many. I mean, there were there were nearly 200 lawsuits, um, and it's like where do, where do you start? But you know, that was that was again tough. Um, and then I mean, the other the final thing I mentioned is um, Leslie Schism. She's the insurance reporter. I'm sorry, she's an insurance reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Um, I mean, she was so. Just clutch, honestly, for me, because she knew people in the industry, um, retired uh, folks even, who could connect the dots between companies that exist today, the insurance companies that exist today, and those that were writing these policies that were ended up ended up being denied back then. And I mean that I I, I needed that because I had again I had a list of claims I had, you know who the companies were back then, but I didn't want to go when I was going to reach out to the insurance companies, I didn't want to go there empty handed. I didn't want to just say generally, how do you feel about this? I mean, there has to be some sort of connection to why you're reaching out to that specific company. And so Leslie, again, was, was just so vital in helping me uh, put together that, um, you know, that, that, that evidence, so to speak. Um, but overall, like, again, it was, it was a very, this project was very challenging. A lot of a lot of three a.m. four a.m. type nights, just making sure I got everything right and making sure I had a command of of all of the details. Again, very challenging, but just also very rewarding uh, in terms of you know telling this important story. In many ways, not untold, but there were aspects of the Tulsa massacre that hadn't been told, um, and being able to 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 contribute, if you will, um, to the public record uh, about what happened and the details and, and, and the impact, right? That's 
that's ultimately what we were trying to trying to do there. And um, uh, you know, again, I'm I'm proud of the work we were we were able to do with that. Well, it occurs to me in thinking about it from their end that there must have been some stunned people on the other ends of lines in certain instances trying to figure out what to say to you. And I'm sure that, that you, there were more than a few instances in that of, we'll call you back. Yeah, yeah, for for sure, for sure. And I, and I think that's, I mean, you raise a good point, right? Like, again, no one today had anything to do with yep. what happened in, 19, in the 1920s. However, you know, their names in many cases, or in some cases, the company's name didn't even change. Like there were no mergers or anything. It was, they wrote this policy back then and they exist today. And and so as it's our job as journalists to raise that point. Why? Because not only are readers curious about that, but the family was curious about it. I mean, when you feel like someone has aggrieved your ancestor and no one has answered for it, you, you, you feel hopeless and like you have no recourse, right? But when somebody... Any journalist, I mean, that's just the power that we have. And I, and I think we have to be responsible. And we're not, when we're reaching out to these companies, like we're not, we're not asking any blame, so to speak, or we're not indicting you today about what happened. But it is a question that needs to be posed. How did this happen? Why did this happen? What do you have to say about it? That seems, it seems like there are a lot of instructive things that came from that story. I want to move on to one other aspect of that story, because I made a mistake when I wrote you. I referred to it as the Tulsa Race Riot, but as you noted in the story, it's the Tulsa Race, it's known as the Tulsa Race Massacre now, and the distinction is important. This was brought up two years ago. It's still pertinent today. Explain the distinction and why it, like you included it in the story, so you can just... Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, and... You can go very deep in the weeds on this topic, but but I'll just say in general that at the time when 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 this massacre happened, it was referred to as a riot. And the people who referred to that, it was obviously in their best interest to 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 do it, right? To make it seem like this was sort of a spontaneous event that both parties were responsible for, as opposed to you know, directed terrorism, right? That's 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 what it actually was, and and so to be to be honest, there weren't the the people who were the power brokers back then, whether it was the sheriff or the police or the fire chief, the mayor, right? They they could frame it and characterize it as that, and black people were not in in a position, largely to to refute that, right? It's just. It's what became public knowledge almost. Not on that, yeah, not in 1921, you couldn't. Yeah, yeah, right. So, so yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a mischaracterization from, from, from jump. And the reason why it's important that that was, or that many people felt it was important to, to get that changed was for that reason, right? To, to correct history. Because, you know, black and brown people generally are, are not the writers of history, but it does matter. And so, you know, there was a there was an effort. I think it it really took took hold in like the later 2010s or so and and gained steam. And then ultimately the, the, the Tulsa Race Riot Commission was renamed to the Tulsa Race Massacre Commission. And if for nothing else, it was something that 
you know, again, was a more accurate depiction of what happened. Now, I'll say this. The, whether it was a riot or not or a massacre didn't, didn't matter for the insurance policies. It didn't matter for the insurance claims because there were there was language in these insurance provisions that said any riot or invasion or attack, anything of that nature would not be covered by, by uh, under this policy. And what I, what I discovered in my recording is, is that those, that language probably had roots in the civil war era where insurers were fearful about, you know, we had just got finished a, a, a very bloody war and you know, that's, that, that's where that came from. But by the time the 1920s hit, the only people that were disadvantaged, if you will, by, by that language were black neighborhoods, right? Were these areas where these riots, as they called them at the time, but really these, these attacks were taking place. And, and so if you're an insurance company and you have language that disproportionately impacts black people who are paying into these policies, really trying to piece together whatever policy sees they can. There were a number of people who couldn't even cover their entire buildings, right? So they're they're really scraping together money to pay for these policies, and ultimately, it's it's not covered and they're lost because of something that they had nothing to do with, right? And and it and it disproportionately happened to them. And at the time, the insurance companies didn't didn't do anything. You know that language was removed later on. But yeah, it just it just kind of goes to show uh, about how uh, even if you're not being blatantly like discriminating against someone, if 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 you're not looking out for rules that so happen to be doing it, the effect is just the same. We've talked a good amount about your time at the Wall Street Journal. We need to talk about your time and your current job at Forbes. We've you you do writing and you do editing, and I'm just going to run through some recent headlines that you've had on some of the stories that you've done. Tennessee County considers using federal COVID dollars for reparations, another topic very pertinent in 2022 that references history, certainly. Commercials and digital ads are whiter than ever. This was a recent piece that you did about TV commercials and digital commercials. And then a piece on boosting Black women in physics with a new database that is designed to garner those people much more attention. You mentioned venture capital before. You co-wrote a story recently, uh, this is a little bit further back, about the how the overturning of Roe v. Wade would impact black women. You co-wrote that. There's a lot of variety there. What kinds of stories do you like working on best? Yeah, yeah, quite quite a bit of variety for sure. And 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 I'll just say at the onset that I'm very proud and appreciative of, of the position that I have at Forbes. I mean, when I took this job, it was very unique. You know, there wasn't anything like it. Basically, you know, you get to to focus on, like, tell stories through a black lens, right? Black business stories that that aren't just about necessarily entrepreneurship, but you can speak about wealth and power and cultural trends that 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 impact business as well. So, 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 yeah, you know, thank thank you for that for 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 running through some of the work that I've had. I mean, I I think in many ways, like, I I think the the common at least one of the themes for me in terms of like what the stories that I'm most interested in for me, it's, it's, it's really just being about chronicling our, our culture, right? Our, our contributions in many ways, 
the trends that are, are important to us, the issues that impact our lives, such as the the connection between hair relaxer that black women use and, and, and cancer, right? So so these 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 kinds of stories, part of it for me is about like documenting, right? Like I did a story on black brunch over the summer and you know, it's one of those things that that has a special place in the hearts of many black people, but isn't often written about, right? So I kind of took a business angle with that there. And, you know, we as a people, we we've had a lot taken from us and a lot, a lot, I guess, that's been used without credit. And then people will just say, Oh, you know, it's 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 pop culture, but it's like, no, but it came from black culture. And so part of my job is to like Find find these stories that that have a business angle, right? We're a business publication, but also to again document our our contributions, document you know, show a, a perspective about, about about something that may not really be seen in 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 many of the mainstream stories. So so that's that's what I want to bring to the table. One of the recent pieces that you did was a story that again goes back and looks at history, and in this case, it was Amalia Curse. She was a bipartisan shortlist pick of a number of presidents regarding being appointed to the United States Supreme Court as the first black woman before Katanji Brown-Jackson. I'm curious if you can walk us through that story from original idea to finished product. Yeah, for sure, Matt. You know, that's, that is one of the, one of the, another story that I'm proud of because it, it just, it, it elevated or maybe put a put a spotlight on something that a lot of people probably didn't know about, right? Like I, I wanna that's another aspect of the job that I like is revealing things that that you may not have known. And so when I came across her story, we were looking for this was right before you know Jackson was appointed, or at least in that in that time frame. And we we were trying to uh, I'm sorry, no, she'd already been been appointed but just not actually, you know, seat in front. Yeah. And so we were just trying to find a different way to tell that story. I mean, you're going to have, this is historical, this is important, you know, there have been a hundred or plus white justices up until, you know, recent years, like all those stories are important, but we just wanted a different take that, that stood out. And I came across this book about women who shortlisted. In fact, I think that was the name of the book, shortlisted. And I was just curious, like, were there any black women in the in in, in that list? And it turns out there was. And what I what I think is fascinating about her her story, and and I, I talked to her one of her family members afterwards, and they were obviously happy about Judge Jackson, but sad that 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 their you know family member didn't didn't get the chance, and I'd been overlooked, so to speak. But what was fascinating to me about the story is that. And I use the word fascinating. It doesn't feel like the right word because there is a bit of like a wow, like that's a shame. But it it was like, you know, she she had four opportunities by presidents of both parties. So it started with Reagan. Reagan had her on her, his his short list twice. And I'm sorry, Jimmy Carter appointed her to federal judgeship. She was on Reagan's short list. He was Republican. She was on George H.W. Bush's shortlist. He was a Republican. And then President Clinton, a Democrat, also considered her. 
And so she was widely considered to be, I believe, conservative leaning, but still kind of middle of the road. And, you know, despite all of that, it, it just, you know, she was highly qualified, you know, had wrote some really Im important decisions even before, you know, some of those considerations for, for her. And it, it, it didn't matter. Right. And like, I'm not, I can't go back in history and figure out what played into why, you know, the presidents chose who they did. But I think for many black people in particular, you look at a story like that and you say, you know, dang, America proven time and time again, who it prefers in the order of those, of, of those operations. Right. And, and so I just I just felt it was important to to highlight her story and to again just let it let it let it be known for people who didn't know. Bringing history back, as you've done in a number of pieces that I was going through, both at the journal and at Forbes. Just yeah, I'm like, a, I'm like a history reporter. I mean, those are <laughs> well, no, that that's it's a it's a niche that's important and again instructive to someone that aspires to do what you do. That that being a history reporter matters and that it's important in the grand scheme of things. You got to know your history. How has being a journalist shaped how you view the world? Oh, man. Being a journalist, you know, it is it is a lifestyle, and it's and it's it's a lifestyle that I, you know, I, I, it's, it's, I, it's hard to imagine how I would go about life if I didn't know what I learned from journalism. Not only have I, I basically gotten free business, business school with some of the publications that I've worked at, but just being a journalist in general exposes you to so many different things, so many different aspects of society that are important, but that are often like not in our frame of view. And, you know, I think for me, it's, it's, it's just made me realize that you can always press harder, right? Like you, you don't have to take no for an answer. And you can tell, like, who's saying no and how much power they have, too. You mentioned to me in an earlier conversation that you very much want to move the industry forward for black men and women. What are the experiences that you've had that you want to teach others to handle? I appreciate this question. And it's, it's one of those things where I think I grew up and I came up through the ranks of journalism, like hearing about discrimination blatant racism, not just within the newsroom, microaggressions, of course, but also outside of the newsroom, too. As I went through journalism, you think, oh, well, like, man, I don't have any horror stories, right? Like, that's not, that type of stuff that happened decades ago is not happening now. Like, is everything fine and is it okay? And you realize that, no, it's not. <laughs> it, it, we're still far from where we need to be. We're still largely not decision makers in a lot of newsrooms. And there's so many implications of that from what stories get told to how they get told to how they're framed to who gets hired. And I just, I think that there's just so much, there's so much more to do on that front. And for, for me personally, I, I think one of the things, like the experiences that I've had just kind of learning journalism and learning this world, you know. I think I mentioned to you, I'm I'm one of I'm one of twelve siblings. Like I don't I don't come from money, and when I when I first like got into journalism, you you realize how 
much of a middle and upper class industry this is, right? And there's there's a language that comes with that that I didn't know how to speak, right? Whether it's being in meetings, whether it's trying to build camaraderie with people, these are all kind of like new, these were new things to me. And so, so yeah, I mean, those, those are like experiences and those are just my general thoughts or my obstacles or like what we face as journalists today. You still have in many cases, and I hear about this from people in, you know, in my network, but like folks undermining you or not taking your ideas seriously. There's still so many, so many struggles. And I, and I think having more diverse leaders in, in media is, you know, it may not be a, a panacea, but it, it's definitely something that can help turn that tide. Like we, st- we still do have, you know, much work to do to your, your question though was about, <laughs> was about advice to students. And so I guess with that backdrop, I would say like, keep going. First off, this is, this is a tough industry, whether it's late nights or really struggling with how to get a story over the hump. I mean, it's, it's rigorous and it, it'll, it'll kick you behind some days. But for me, I think what's kept me going is like, you have to, like, you're somebody's voice, right? You're, you're, you're bringing a perspective that isn't, that, that isn't common. And like somebody's, somebody's relying on you. Somebody's looking for you to speak for them. Someone is, you know, needs you to tell their stories and speak to them and the work that you do. And so, and then somebody out there, it, it needs an example, right? Like, like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know who I've impacted yet, but I, I know that, you know, I have, I have relationships with a lot of young journalists and, you know, I just think about like, man, what if I wasn't in my role? What if I wasn't doing what I, what I'm doing? Like, could that have made them decide to leave or, you know what I mean? So, so that's, that's, that's what keeps me going. And the other thing too, is like, it's real cliche, but it, it almost can't be cliche because it's so important, but the network and thing you hear it time and time again, you know, not what you know, who you know. Pretty much all of my jobs have come from knowing somebody either there or with a connection to that job, right? Like them vouching for me or putting in a good word for me. It's just, it's so crucial. And in the, in the pandemic era that we, you know, that we live in, uh, work from home and all of that, it is harder to network. But I would say every time that you have opportunities to do it, like bend over backwards to make it happen because... You, you never know who you're going to meet. You never know. And it's almost, in many ways, it's kind of like watering a plant too, right? Like you, if, especially if you're going to an event with people that you already know, that you haven't seen in a while, like those things are are important. And I'm sorry, I know we're, we're short on time, but I just have to say also, take the job. Like it's, it's, it's good for, 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 for journalists to kind of cut their teeth, especially, you know, when you're young, get the experience and a place, really learn how it works, really try to perform and, and do your best while you're there. So, All right, last question. We salute you for your good work and ask that you do likewise. Is there a black journalist that you would like to salute for their good work? Yeah, you know, this one, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of folks that, that come to mind for me that, that I think do tremendous work. Just to name a few, Justin Tinsley and, and Anscape. Jordan Holman at the at the New York Times. She covers retail there, and there, yeah, there are there are a few others. 
Dominic Midori. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank, but she 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 covers VC venture capital and startups. At Davis is her last name. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, she covers VC at at, at TechCrunch and is a very passionate writer. Like you can you can almost feel her conviction through her stories, and she speaks to you, not not at you. And yeah, those are those are those are just a few that come to mind. But there's so many great journalists out there of all, of all shades. I mean, I just I love <laughs> I, lo- I love this 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 profession. It's it's a very small one, but you know you got people that are really doing big and amazing things. Oh, one other person I, I'll mention too, Richard Richard Prince has a website called Journalism. You nod your head, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm familiar with it. You know, it's just a fascinating. I mean, he used to be a Washington Post reporter, and uh, and I'm sure had a very, you know, he's he's been around the block. But he the way he the way he delivers news that that you care about about the media industry, and from a from just again a lens of diversity, right? One where it's like if the, if if this is important to you, here are the stories that 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 touch on that and that matter most in that area, and. Uh, I mean, he, he does a phenomenal job. It's a must-read for me, so. Sure. Jared Council, you're certainly on our list. We thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck. We'll be following you throughout your career. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.